0: Hi, I'm Daniel Leakies, and welcome to Book 101. Book 101 is all about the books that i read for the last 40 years. And today, I have my special guest. She's the author of Judge of Mystic Saga series. i other Miss Safa Burnell.
1: Hi, hi, and hello, everybody. My name is Safa Burnell. I am a cyberpunk and mythpunk author of The Judge of Mystic Saga, including Char and Ash, Son of Abel, Book of Revels, and the upcoming book, Gunungagap. It's so wonderful to uh, listen and to be here for everybody today.
0: Yes, so before we go to the last part of your series, let's do the recap of all the books of Judge of Mystic Saga.
1: So it starts off with Char and Ash. Char and Ash is book one. It's currently available out in paperback and digital right now. It starts off with the Mystic Realms keeping a tenuous peace after centuries of war. Forged into the realm's only judge, demigod Caleb Matheson is both peacemaker and executioner of the mystic troops. When Caleb is called to the charred remains of a scorched sacred grove outside Dover, rumors reignite tensions as Ares warns of war's whisper. High Queen Celica is hiding something in the roots and petals of her fae courts, and it smells of char and ash book one is a fantastic adventure. It is a work of myth punk. So it's basically kind of, uh, I think you could call it urban fantasy. You know, we've got that convergence of different mythologies, while at the same time having familiar locations like Vancouver and Dover, places that people can actually go to and understand. And it, Has Caleb Malthuson who teams up with his wife Tuya Dragonova to solve this mystery before it's too late and before the villains learn how to kill the gods, and so it's quite an adventure. And then we follow that up with Son of Abel. Son of Abel is book two. And uh, this was originally released in 2017. And then we realized that the world building around Son of Abel was so rich and so amazing. We really needed to go back, ground people in what the situation actually was, and add to it and and open it up a little bit, you know, not have it just so insular on Caleb. So Char and Ash and the rest of the books of the series came out of those conversations with my editor and I. And then Son of Abel was given a revamp and 45,000 more words. (laughs) So it expanded incredibly. So do please make sure you get the new cover version, the uh, one from 2023, which has just an epic amount of new material, and I'm quite proud of what Son of Abel has become, and it starts off with Caleb being like, I want out, you know, and the entire cosmos hiccups around Finnegan the Fae, as Caleb is saying this. Caleb is desperately clinging to this journal of a seventh century cardinal, obsessed with a magical tattoo that threatens to crumble the mystic realms to wrath and war, a place they know and fear too well. And spiraling with only his scheming ex Delilah to quote unquote help. Caleb searches for the elusive way out of the truce as he descends through the essence of grief into layers of hell on earth. Finnegan breaks his ex- exile and we get to see a lot of comedy and a lot of humor out of Finnegan here. So there's definitely still a balance with the emotion, which is something I always promise. Um And he goes to find Caleb's absentee follower, Raynar, to wrench Caleb loose before his absence strips the realms of their judge and protector. And before Delilah weaves Caleb into plans of her own and wrath shatters through the last roots of the world tree. The son of Abel is passionate. It is incredibly emotional. It still has those breaths of humor. It still has those uh, little bits of relief. Uh, But it is the most emotionally grounded in you know in grief and different sort of emotions like that of all the books so this is the valley and now after the valley once we go through the journey of son of abel then uh and through the storyline of caleb realizing that he should not and cannot do this alone and he actually does go for help and that is when we start seeing a little bit more and a little bit more of climbing out of the valley into the mountains, which starts us off with book of revels book three book of revels is where we finally see Stana, the villain of Charred Ash get her comeuppance. And so we get to have that experience of tracking Stana down, tracking all the people down. And not only that, but Caleb meets the character of Lilith, a precocious, rebellious 13 year old delinquent who gets kicked out of boarding school for punching a teacher. and he ends up taking her under his wing. Uh, of course, her mother is the quite villainous Delilah. So that always makes things fun. Delilah told Caleb, "Go get my daughter, you know, I'm busy. I'm not gonna do it. you do it." And they discover they discover that their family. And so Caleb ends up traveling around with Lilith. He learns a bunch of secrets about their mutual past. And then by the end of Book of Revels, we have a massive battle, which I'm really excited about people getting to read. You will be able to read Book of Revels on October 3rd. I'm so excited. I think everyone's going to love what happens. You know, I really do. So that book is going to be a lot of fun. It concludes with this massive battle, uh, which I really enjoy writing. <laughs> i like, yes, give me the battle scenes. Where can I add some open pugilism as a martial artist and as historian? I love, I love me a good battle. And then the ending of Book of Rebels swoops Caleb and Lilith away off into basically their home called the Hallows, which brings us to Ganungagap. Now, Gunungagap sounds like a very funny word. Really, it's that chaos, that void, you know, before everything was created. So, you know, in various mythologies and various cosmogonies, you have that idea of, you know, God upon the face of the waters or, you know, Uriname dancing upon the waters before creating the universe egg or you know the waters of zaptepi you know and you kind of get that sense and in most mythologies everything starts with this black dark void and in the norse culture that dark void that gap is called ginunga gap and it is it is that that dark void before the beginning of everything. And so I had to use it. You know, I had to bring in my Norse culture. Uh, it's a fantastic word once you uh, know what it is. Oh, but <laughs> I know a lot of people are like, what in the world? <laughs> what is this noise? Yes. What are you... It's a great way to educate people on uh, Norse cosmogony and things like that. You know, basically, the uh, giant emir getting released from the ice. He ends up getting licked out of the ice by a cow uh, called Olumna. <laughs> and uh, that's basically how the Norse universe really gets started. It gets started by this, just a cow in the middle of a void, in the middle of this conflagration between fire and ice, you know, and then Emir, who is the parent, the father and mother of giants, and then Bur, who ends up getting like licked out of the ice too, who ends up becoming you know the father of Buri, who ends up becoming the father of Odin, and then like all this. So I was able to kind of bring it back. Yunungagap is, is bringing us into Norse mythology in a way that we've started out very vague in Charndash. A little bit more into Norse Smith and Son of Abel. We get to hear the story of the death of Baldur. We get to, you know, see what's happening with the sons of Thor, Magni and Mothi, And then, Book of Revels, we're kind of dealing with some other things, but that stuff is in the background. We're seeing Thor for the first time in Book of Revels. And then, when we get to Gnungagap, we are almost incredibly, kind of, almost cloistered into Norse myth uh, because Caleb is the grandson of Thor. So we're going from that place of sort of out there, away in the Utengard, in that outside place, and slowly bringing Caleb and his daughter and his father into that Innengard, into that inner place where family and society really just kind of, you know, is revived. In so it is another form of that place of healing when you are finally able to, as prodigals or as people who have had disconnection, which is really what the stories are about, you know, as that feeling of coming home.
0: Can we compare uh, to Mr. Neil Gaiman Norse mythology?
1: I think so, yes. I think you can compare Gunung to Norse mythology. I think Neil Gaiman does such an incredible job of telling those stories. And I love Norse mythology. I love listening to the audiobook uh, by Neil Gaiman. I just think that it's luscious and fantastic. You know, when you're going into the poetic idas and the sagas and everything like that, too, the extant information that we have sometimes contradicts each other. But for the most part, just has this rich storytelling where there's lots of room to kind of embody and play you know, to play around in it and things like that. And, you know, of course, when it comes to folklore and mythology, my personal philosophy on it is that there are so many different versions of oral traditions because so many different people have spoken them. And so we get that sense of variation that we can play with. But when you get to something like Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, you know, when you get to that book, all of a sudden it's it's, it's as if there is now a island of solid granite in the middle of a sea of different variations of the tales and you have that sort of grounding mechanism to go okay here we go from here we can look out and see what all those variations are but I love how grounded he is and his voice and how you know the emotion is there there's also that bit of humor I quite enjoy Neil Gaiman's work I have ever since um, Neverwhere first (coughs) book of his that I read and I'm sure that you know there has been some influence about how he brings mythology into works, and uh, growing up, you know, watching, you know, watching—that's the wrong word—reading *Sandman* and *Neverwhere*, and you know, kind of going from there into the career I've gone into. I absolutely think that there is even a tonal, you know, homage, you know, to what Neil Gaiman does. Although, you know, of course, *Ginon Gagap* is a work of modern literature, as in. You know, this is basically taking place in, in 2017.
0: This is the latest version.
1: Oh. Yeah. So the Judge of Mystic Saga takes place in 2017. And so the technology, you know, people are not on TikTok doing TikTok dances. It's like, I got this for my Instagram. You know? oh, what iPhone so, were we at on that in 2017? Yes.
0: So, Miss yeah. Bernal, do you think that... The brain of Miss Madeline Miller and Mr. Neil Gaiman, you you combine together in this saggy book.
1: I think, yeah, I think the emotional vulnerability and the tenderness that Madeline Miller produced in the Song of Achilles, that sort of inner vision on these larger than life heroic figures, the concentration on their emotional lives. I definitely think that I concentrate quite substantially on the emotional lives of my characters, Uh, you know, sometimes to the exclusion of most other things. I really need to get those emotional scenes in there. And I think that sense of play and adventure that you get in Neil Gaiman's work, that sense of grounding in mythology, you know, this is what the myths say. So this is what we're going with, you know. Even, you know, as we we talked about in Char and Ash, even when it comes to figures like Zeus, what do you do with Zeus? You know, well, I—he Zeus is Zeus, you know, I'm, I'm sticking with the myths, but I'm also putting him in a, in a diaper, in an adult diaper in a nursing home. And there's where he can stay. Uh, funny enough, there was a reviewer on Goodreads who uh, talked to almost their entire review was, oh, my gosh, laugh at Zeus, read this book. You know, yes, <laughs> that is exactly <laughs> what I wanted. Uh, <laughs> but I think that when you can kind of look at my body of work here, when you look at the quartet, you can see that emotional vulnerability that you know that toughness, which comes from seeing where decisions originate seeing the connection between people, seeing the inner lives, the friendships, the lovers, the, you know, the frustrations that you get in Song of Achilles. And then you also, on the other hand, see these sort of somewhat off-kilter rebellious adventures that you get from Neil Gaiman's work. And all with that breath of mythology handled as I have been taught and as I've learned to handle mythology kind of connecting things together. So, you know, in, in Book of Revels, we meet Thor for the first time. In Gunungagab, we really get to see Thor. We get to see more of Odin. Odin has been sort of a background figure in Son of Abel. We get to see him in one scene, him and Frigga, uh, his wife. And then it isn't until Gunungagab that you really start seeing these figures. You know, we get to see Sif. And Sif, not, not the Marvel version, of Sif, but the mythology <laughs> version of Sif, where she's got golden hair, and you know she's this fertility goddess, this you know goddess of the grains and agriculture, and uh, she's one tough mama. <laughs> you know, just because she's got the long <laughs> golden hair doesn't mean she's not tough. She's still a Scandinavian woman that has survived centuries of cold winters and brutal springs. She just does it in a very kind of not necessarily soft but strong feminine way. And she still yeah. has that tenderness, you know. She is that tender emotion in Thor, you know. She is also that tender emotion in herself as a mother who, as we find out in Son of Abel, had to give up her two sons. Because uh, in the action of Son of Abel, we find out that the sons of Thor, uh, Magni and Mutti, were taken away from their parents and sent to Midgard, aka the world of the humans, and that's the moment that broke the family that's the moment of disconnection. And so in Ganungagap, you've got this massive gap, this incredible space between, which I'm using the actual Ganungagap as as a symbol for. And then it is that moment of coming together and repairing that loss and repairing that and and healing the family. And then through healing of family, once that family unit is You know, maintained and they come together and they find a place to just be as a family, then they are strong enough and able enough to take on the evils that are still lurking. Cormac of the Willow is still lurking. We haven't dealt with him yet. We still have that massive villain who has been taking half of the fairies, half of the fae, and turning them against every mammal, against every fauna instead of the flora, which they are. So we still have battles to fight, but those battles are more accomplishable when you come together as a family unit, when you come together as you know, this collection of societal units, because again, you know, we have so many different mythologies in these books. We've got, you know, everything from, from Taoist and Hindu and Shinto all the way to Norse and Hellene and sort of that Northern swath of Africa. You know, we've got all of these different mythological groups who eventually come together and come together in a way where they're like, yeah, you know what, we have differences, but We absolutely all want our children to survive and thrive. We absolutely all want everybody to be able to take those deep breaths and live in their world and not only live, but live well. And so we all have to come together and we all have to, you know, find that place where it's not just a truce. It is a bond. And that really is the story of Ginnungagap. And by the end of that book, that's where we leave Caleb and his family. We leave them in a place where in Charnash, we see the mystic truths as a whole bunch of different disparate groups, all challenging each other to play nice. And by the end of it in Ginnungagap, we come together as more as people welcome at each other's tables.
0: Interesting, Mm -hmm. Miss Bernal. But before we go on. I want to shout out to the people listening in Spain. Muchas gracias, Spain. In Andalusia, I got 47 share. Catalonia, 15%. Madrid, the capital, I got 13%. Valencia, Navarre, Galicia, Belaric Island, Castile de Leon, uh, Bas- Basque County, Maurice Murcia. Canary Island. Oh, I love Canary Islands. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Principality of Austria, Aragon, and last but not the least, Cantabaria. Thank you, Spain. Muchas gracias todos, Spain, for supporting this podcast because this podcast is created to empower writers all over the world like me, Safa Bernal. So, Ms. Bernal, if we talk about Ms. Madeline Miller and uh, Neil Gaiman, how about the timeless mythology by Edith Hamilton? If you compare the saga books, there are similarities.
1: Honestly, it's been a while since I've read uh, mythology by Edith Hamilton. I think, you know, the accuracy... That she used to create, you know, her books, you know, that, that timeless, the scholarship that she went into in order to get them, you know, not necessarily politically correct, but right. I absolutely think, yeah, that would, uh, that would match quite well. I do look at mythology as the way it was at its time within the context of the time periods in which these myths were told and in which these myths were believed, not just told, but believed, you know, and especially when we get into Norse mythology, because so many works of Norse myth were not written down until Christians were writing it. And you have that exterior lens upon all of these tales that you kind of have to see through a little bit. I think that Edith Hamilton's work in uh, basically writing these things down, in looking at them, looking at the translations, and writing down what was present—not necessarily what you know in the 1940s people would have been like, oh yes, this is this is exactly the way that I would want to see a, to see a story on on this <laughs> wonderful figure, you know. It's, no, she's she's being as accurate as she can, you know. That scholarship is unparalleled for a reason, you know. I do look at mythology. Within those lenses as much as possible of choosing the options which match them to what we have in the past. So, you know, we have those moments where again, going back to Charnash with Zeus, Zeus is that guy. You know he is that guy that has all of those myths where you're like, eee, Zeus, you're terrible. <laughs> like, oh, you're that's not nice. I don't want to think about that. Like, oh, you. So you turned into a swan and then you. Oh dear. You know. You know we still have those moments, but this is you know a few thousand years later. Where is he now? And that's where I get my chance to play. So even Aries, do I start? The myth's up, and we'll see this in Agape Maki, which is an origin story on Aries and Aphrodite. That's just, that is coming out in 2024. Uh, you know, I start Aries off as that angry, upset war god. You know, the thrashing young man going, "You don't trust me. You don't like me. Not even my own father will help me." You know, that angry teenager thrashing around but he's got enough power that when he thrashes the world ends up in war you know things that are not very savory not very nice and then through a series of events Ares starts to grow up and he starts to learn and he realizes that he needs to try and be less like his father and more like the men that he sees in the human world and that's where things for Aries start to change. But it takes time. It takes, you know, hundreds, if not a thousand years for him to really inhabit and learn and to let go of some of that anger, which kept him as that, you know, hated in athens war god you know that they would laugh at when he was captured and put into you know a pottery urn you know and then finally go okay let him out let him out you know or the one where he would complain to zeus about you know people harming him on the battlefield and zeus would be like go home you little you know like i don't even like you you know go home why can't you be more like your sister athena and i mean i find it hilarious that of course we get all of those stories when uh, it was athenian writers writing them so you know there you go you can kind of look at it that way but by the time we get to the roman empire all of a sudden you know Ares is not just this war god but he is the god of quite a bit of justice but he's also the god of the everyday man and so you see that progression in the myths where Ares starts being seen in more savory lights and i mean always in places like sparta and things like that too but the fact that in the past, Ares was a god where soldiers would sometimes you know, sacrifice living beings to Ares. I'm not going to shy away from the fact that that is how he began. I'm also going to not shy away from the fact that in my novels, Ares has 2,000 plus years to have grown and to have learned certain things and to come to different conclusions, mostly through the absolute loving kindness of his consort, Um, And his lover, Aphrodite, and how her influence and the influence of having children, you know, has really, you know, brought him. Uh, So I think that when you look at something like the work of Edith Hamilton, when you look at that succinct and clear body of mythological works, I really do take inspiration from being as accurate as I can and then taking it from there. you know, I'm not gonna keep them in that state because that state happened a few thousand years ago and people learn, people grow over time. I think it's also important for us in the society that we're in to realize that if something you know, X amount of years is handled quite differently, there is still time for everybody to change and to learn and to grow and to find a better way. And that we can't just write people off because they had this view back then. if they learn a different view and they're able to honestly apologize and to kind of work on that and and move forward, then we need to look at that as well. and we need to hold that and allow them that space. You know, so I think in that way, I do like being as hearty with myths as Edith Hamilton um, in uh, in quite a way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very well said Miss Burnell so what are the elements that you put in your last novel of your jazz of mystic saga to wrap up all the boots?
1: I have Thor returning to Midgard you know glorious return because he thinks he's helping um and he, you know in the mythology that we have Thor's chariot was pulled by two rams rams that you know he could slaughter and cook and eat and as long as the bones were you know kept exactly where they were then the rams would basically just kind of reconstruct and be reborn the next morning so you know this sort of eternal cycle of food uh, so he realizes that oh no Humans have modernized since the last time I was on Midgard. So instead, he thinks he's helping and being incognito like the humans do by taking his chariot and hooking it up to two Dodge Rams, which he has (laughs) jerry-rigged to be able to use reins to turn the wheels. And, you know, the embarrassment of his kids being like, oh, dad, dad, no, (laughs) no. (laughs) <laughs> dad why that's that's not how you oh man you ride in the ram why would i ride in a ram do you know how unsensical that is oh my gosh you know i, I take a very yes. different approach to thor so <laughs> um we have a lot of fun with that that's a lot of uh that's a lot of fun it it also lightens and brightens things up i have a bit of scania um the the hall of thor so, no, you know, Valhalla is not the only hall in, in Asgard. There's tons of different halls for, for the different figures. And so we get to see Folkvangr, We get to see Bilskneir. We get to see other places in Asgard other than Valhalla. We do get to see Valhalla in Book of Revels, but in this one, we get to open up the world of Asgard and see a bunch of different places that don't necessarily get the same amount of attention as, as the Hall of Odin. And so that is a lot of fun, you know, and reminding people that there were, you know, two places where the honored dead could go, there was Walhalla, where they would have, you know, endless drinking parties where every warrior had a dog, or there was Fulkwanger, this beautiful meadow of flowers where beautiful maidens were around so you basically got to you know choose do you want to go to the place with all the hot chicks or do you want to go to the place with the puppies (laughs) in the beer you know like where are we going here uh so we get to do that we also get to have a beautiful of course it's me so i call it a beautiful final battle between well in book of Revels, we got to deal with stana and so that was the conclusion of Stana's arc. Well, for the most part. And then in Gunungagab, we get to find the last throes of Cormac of the Willow, the evil consort of High Queen Selica of the Fae. And so we get to have that battle and it is going to be a combination of a whole bunch of different myths and different figures, you know, everyone from Horace to, you know, Izanami and other such figures. And then we get to have a new bonding place where we see the axis mundi aka that you know connection point between all of the different realms the world tree we actually get to witness and see and bond with the world tree and how it branches out to connect all of these different realms together in this sense of synthesis and we get to see the world tree pissed off pardon my language but i find it (laughs) fun (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nothing says oh you done messed up than having the world tree where everything kind of clings onto it you know Yggdrasil being like okay no <laughs> time to deal with this <laughs> you know, like, I've let you guys do it for far too long and now it's my turn and you're not gonna like the fact that it's my turn and Yggdrasil is actually a character So we get to see not only the tree itself as an actual tree, but we get to see the full expression of the character behind the world tree, which uh, spoilers you can kind of see in the preceding books, you know, the big reveal of of who this character actually is. Uh, I I hide it very tenuously, you know, it's, it's there, you can see it. But uh, the characters around them get to to realize just who the world tree actually is. And uh-oh. Wow. <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> Watch
0: out. <laughs> Watch out. That's
1: not a spoiler, right? <laughs> it's not a spoiler. No, no, no. It's not a spoiler. I have a terrible penchant in my fiction. I want to tell all the secrets right away. I'm like, oh, no! I just want everybody to know. So for me, I think the, the fun of it is when a reader knows something before a character does. And so I'll share little bits and things like that. So the reader will go, oh my gosh, whoa, hey, I saw this coming. But then they're like, when is this character going to find out? How are they going to react when they find out? And I think seeing the characters to react to certain pieces of information when they receive it, I think that's where I have the most fun. Uh not to say that there aren't some things that are kept secret, but I do like the fun of having a reader be in on something before um before some of the characters are. And then having that that burst of a character suddenly realizing something and being like, Holy, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like, yes, I saw so it miss- coming. Yeah. So Miss Barnell.
0: You decided that this saga will be only four novels, right? Four stories. Yeah, so after two years that you want to decide that you want to continue this series, is it possible?
1: It is. And the funny thing that happened after Charnash and Son of Abel came out, I had an influx of people asking me, yes, but what happens to Tuya? Yes, but what? And... I just had a conversation with my editor, you know, this past week actually. And they want me to do a fifth novel to the series, which happens concurrently to the rest of the books. So which happens concurrently to the end of Charnash, to Son of Abel, Book of Revels, and then about Tuya and about her journey and, and what happens to her and that focus on the feminine. And so uh, we have titled it Psychopomp. After, you know, a psychopomp in mythology being a spirit, deity, ancestor, or some form of angel or demon. You know, it is some form of mythological figure that acts as a conduit for the dead to go towards the afterlife. So that's what a psychopomp is, in case, you know, it's also a song by the Tea Party, which is a really good song. Uh, But the novel's titled Psychopomp, and it's looking like it's going to be out around the same time as Agape Maki next year. So <laughs> there is already oh, a fifth wow. one that is scheduled. It's not part of the quartet in, well, it, it happens at the same time as the quartet, but because the quartet, the main character of the quartet is Caleb. So this is a sort of subsequent novel, which will take place at the same time as these other books, but its main character is Tuya instead. So uh, we just revealed... That we are going to have this novel called Psychopomp. We are going to be able to tell quite a few Tuya year Dragonova stories of her own. And uh, that brings in more Slavic mythology as well, which is something that's even harder to kind of get a hold of than Norse mythology, you know, pre-Christian Norse mythology, especially and certain things like that. There's so little Slavic folklore and mythology that exists with scholarship. I should say with scholarship, because, you know, we have stories, but the way that the Slavic, you know, kind of the Slavic pagan religion, the pre-Christian religions worked, we're not entirely sure about that because Christianity came so early to a lot of the Eastern European countries and just different things like that happened. So I'm having to rely more on, you know, especially my my husband's family, who are Ukrainian, and going into the Ukrainian myths and the stories that were told and passed down from mother to mother to mother to mother, to mother and um, kind of getting into Slavic myth and Slavic folklore that way. So it's an incredibly almost familial novel for me to go into more of, you know, Makosh and Veles and Perun and try and decipher from the limited scholarship that we do have you know, how everything worked and what the different stories mean. And of course, you know, of course you have figures like Baba Yaga and things that everybody knows, you know, oh yeah, the one with the chicken hut and the mortar and pestle that she flew around with. Well, yeah, but there's more to it than that, that we have potentially lost. So it gives me some time to be able to dive into that Eastern European folklore even more, which I love because, you know, I'm Scandinavian um, but part of me has Eastern European genetics as well, that I've never until adulthood been able to really engage with, you know, cause I was raised by my Scandinavian family. I was raised, you know, going between uh, Norway and Canada, although I spent most of my time in Canada, um, as you can hear from my accent, <laughs> I, yeah, De- definitely. Know, that Vancouver, that Vancouver accent of mine. Um, but you get to you know, being an adult learning how to explore that culture of my father's family that I was never around. You know, another reason why these books got written in the first place to kind of reconnect that sense of family, but uh, also being able to visit those stories now as an adult is a much different experience than, you know, hearing the the ghost stories of Baba Yaga that, you know, my uh, my, my husband got to listen to as a kid and, and he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> no, <laughs> Baba Yaga still scares me. Okay. <laughs> like it still <laughs> freaks me out. Like they are these powerful narratives. So it's called psychopomp. Uh, that'll be the one. And yes, there are ways that by the end of this saga, by the end of the quartet, there are more stories to tell, you know? Yes. Uh, so that's going to be fun. Uh, we are working on an audio drama as well that takes place before The quartet, it's called Waxwing and I'm producing it with an incredibly talented um, internationally awarded world builder uh, by the name of Emily Armstrong. And so Emily and I are currently writing all of the scripts for Waxwing, which takes place before Charnash. It takes place before everything. And the main characters of Waxwing are Icarus and Leander. And so that's going to be going more into Icarus, Leander, Aphrodite, Ares, and all those people. And that's going to be 100% audio drama. Uh, So it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) Yes, definitely interesting, Ms. Bernal. So can you please invite our listeners to buy all your books?
1: Everyone, I would love it if you went to your local bookstore, to your library, or if you went online to saffaburnell.com and searched for my books. Uh, Please do go and purchase Char and Ash, Son of Abel. Book of Revels is out October 3rd and Gnundgagap will be out in November. I am so looking forward to everybody reading them and falling in love with these characters as much as I have fallen in love with them. I really hope you do. Uh, You can find my books wherever books are sold, you know, both. Paperback and digital. If you want more information on that, you can get it at saphaburnell.com. That is S A P H A B U R N E L L.com. You can also find my works like Char and Ash at books to char and ash. And uh, more information will be there if you search either Safa Brunel or you search Char and Ash and the uh, Judge of Mystic Saga, you will be able to find them. Uh, if you are in Canada, I would please urge you to talk to your local public libraries about bringing these books in. We have a fantastic program for Canadian authors called the Public Lending Rights. In Canada which helps authors maintain their ability to write by getting their books into local public libraries across the country and uh, that's another way to support my work. I would very much appreciate if you drop me a line at Usurper Kings either on x Instagram threads basically anywhere on social media including Twitch where there is a Usurper Kings that is me.
0: Yes, people, let's support Miss Safa Burnell because Judge of Mystic Saga is one of a kind. We are comparing to Miss Madeline Miller, to Mr. Neil Gaiman, and of course, The Timeless Mythology by Edith Hamilton. Yes. So, if you support her, more and more books to come. And of course, you will always come back to my podcast and to promote. Yes.
1: Yes. And if you want to hear the entire series of podcasts, episodes that we've done, uh, that I've done with wonderful Mr. Lucas, uh, they are listed on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, uh, and I've put the episodes specifically about the Judge of Mystic series on my website, saffobernell.com, so you can listen straight on there as well. Please listen to Book One Review. It's a fantastic podcast, and it's been an absolute joy to be here. So, yes,
0: definitely. And thank you, Listen Notes, for my latest course of 26. And my podcast is belong to, well, 10% popular show globally. Miss Bernal, thank you so much for your time.
1: You're welcome. Thank you so much for yours.
0: Body gone, people. See you soon.